In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. What a beautiful day. What a weekend. So beautiful to see you all here. So this morning, uh, we, we find Jesus talking to this man who has been extremely ill for 38 years. 38 years. Poor man's been lying on a mat beside the pool of Bethesda, which is this pool near the temple that was said to have healing powers. Apparently, every once in a while during the day, fresh waters were fed into the pool, and that created this sort of stirring of the water. And the legend was that if you were the first person into the pool while the water was being stirred up, you would be healed. And apparently this guy had been lying there waiting for someone to help him get down into the waters. And every time someone else beat him to it, 38 years. So Jesus comes along and he asks the man a question, a question which to any person who'd been sick for a really long time, you'd think would be really insulting. Do you want to be healed? I can just imagine this poor guy lying on his mat, you know, his arms and legs withered, his, his whole body emaciated. He's looking up at this young, healthy, able-bodied Jesus, and he can't believe what Jesus is asking him. Are you kidding me? Right? Do I want to be healed? What kind of question is that? What do you think, I chose this? But this is what's interesting. Instead of getting mad at Jesus or answering the simple question with a simple answer, the man starts giving excuses. Interesting. What's going on with this guy? He's been lying on that mat for 38 years and he hasn't been able to talk a single person into helping him down into the water. Someone has been feeding him all this time, presumably. Someone's helping him get to the bathroom once in a while, get into bed at night, one assumes. But for 38 years, no one's come around to help him get into the pool. Something fishy going on here. And Jesus senses, senses that, and that's why he asks the question, do you really want to get healed? Uh, confession time now. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I woke up in the middle of the night with a wheezing in my chest, making it difficult to breathe, and I went into my parents' bedroom, and I woke up my dad, who was a doctor, and he recognized right away that I was having a mild asthma attack, most likely brought on by seasonal allergies. My symptoms were hardly life-threatening, but it was enough of a concern for my parents that the very next day I got moved out of the bedroom that I had to share with my two older brothers and into a room of my very own and get this, with an air conditioner. <laughs> I'm talking about the only air conditioner my parents had ever bought at that time. It was mine. <laughs> Even better, suddenly I was receiving special treatment from my parents. For the first time in my life, they were expressing concern about me. They were sending me to doctors and putting me on medications and fussing over me. Man, I milked that sympathy like old McDonald milked a cow. I just, whew. 
And one day I was coming home from school, I was a little worried actually because I was starting to feel better. <laughs> Huge problem. So I, I saw, actually saw this goldenrod plant growing by the side of the road. I looked around to see if anybody was watching and then I stuck my face right into the middle of that goldenrod and I, I snorted up that pollen like a 10-year-old coke fiend. just to keep that gravy train of sympathy coming my way, which I suppose just goes to show the lengths to which a slightly neglected child will go just to get a little bit more love from mom and dad. And the AC, that was key as well. If Jesus had come along and seen me snorting the uh, goldenrod pollen, he would not have needed to ask if I wanted to be healed. It was obvious I did not. <laughs> but this guy in Jerusalem, lying by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, the question had to be asked. Of course, most of the time when we're sick, we really do want to be healed, of course. We, we really would find the question that Jesus asks deeply offensive. But on the other hand, we know that, you know, smoking causes lung cancer, and yet we smoke. We know that alcoholism gives us liver disease. Too much sugar gives us type 2 diabetes. Driving our cars leads to climate change. Refusing to get vaccinated leads to COVID. And by the way, we have to note this week the horrifying milestone of one million Americans dead from COVID. And it has to be mentioned that according to the latest study, counties that voted for Trump have over twice the mortality rate of counties that voted for Biden. In this and in so many other ways, our hospitals are filled with people dying of diseases that are entirely preventable. And yet for whatever reason, we make bad choices that kill us. Why? Well, that's the question of the ages, isn't it? Whether we're addicted to alcohol or indolence, cheap oil or conspiracy theories, the root cause of what's killing us oftentimes is a disease of the will. Our parents, our spouses, our doctors, our therapists will sit us down, tell us that we're making bad choices, but we know that. Bad choices is just one of those phrases that gets thrown around as if it explains something and it explains nothing. There's something else going on. St. Paul called it the sin of the flesh. Augustine called it a confusion of loves. Freud called it a subconscious death wish. D.H. Lawrence called it a woundedness of the soul. For 2,000 years, we've been shaming and punishing and preaching at the problem. And all this time, we've made precious little progress in understanding the root of the disease that's killing us and our planet. Bad choices. That phrase comes up a number of times in a short documentary called Holding Still, that a number of us watched last week. The filmmaker went into Folsom Prison in California to interview inmates who have learned to do centering prayer while incarcerated. 
We watched the documentary as we got ready for a mini retreat that we had yesterday with Susan Turpin and Rita Wyke, two women who go into prisons and teach Centering Prayer. And the interviews with these incarcerated men are a revelation, just a gorgeous insight into the humanity of people who are actually healing their lifelong compulsions to make bad choices. All of these men talk about the, the bad choices they made that landed, landed them in prison, but through centering prayer, they've been able to heal the root cause that led to those bad decisions. And with every one of them, it began with trauma. One man talked about going to school as a little boy and listening to kids talk about Bart Simpson and realizing he couldn't talk about what he had watched the night before because what he had watched was his mother getting beaten and tied up with an electrical cord while her apartment was ransacked by junkies looking for narcotics. Other men talked about growing up with sexual abuse and withering violence and casual criminality and lethal masculinity and how it all taught them to react with violence whenever they felt threatened or afraid. But with centering prayer, finally, these men found the means to take a long, loving look at themselves. And in the process, they began to heal. One of the inmates, a young man named Cat, said, in the past, I was never able to look within myself, never because I was always afraid of the way I felt when I did that. And I recognize now why I was so bitter and so angry at the whole world and everybody else, because I would hold all these things in, and any little thing would trigger me to act violently, or turn me to drugs, or any kind of criminal behavior. Another man who was not identified made this incredible statement. I had to write it down word for word. He said, there used to be this old ad on TV, and its tagline was, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Remember that, that ad? He said, well, in my case, you could drop the last two words. A mind, for me, was just a terrible thing. It's like one horrible memory after another horrible memory. And then by doing this process of centering prayer, I found that, you know what? Those thoughts aren't me. That's the junk that I picked up over the decades, and I can let that stuff go. I can start putting that stuff into its rightful place. I can start tapping into much more important things like faith, hope, love, joy, courage, wisdom. They're all in there, and it's funny. They all have their own language, and their first language is silence, he said. And that's just the craziest thing that never, that never would have occurred to me prior to tapping into this thing, centering prayer. Another man put it this way, God's language is silence, but it's a silence that says something to you. I love that. At the heart of the matter, these men made bad choices because they were taught to do so over lifetimes of abuse, abuse that continues, of course, and is fully sanctioned by the prison system itself. 
And then someone came along and taught them how to simply sit still in the presence of God. Sitting still for these men is the most difficult thing they've ever had to do. They close their eyes and at first all they see is their shame and traumatic scenes of violence and failure and rage. But in the process, over time, they learn how to let their traumas dissolve in the light of God's presence. And then one day they close their eyes and they realize it's beautifully quiet in there, quiet as a church. And in that silence that is the presence of God, they hear a voice, maybe the voice of their uncreated souls, maybe the voice of Jesus, that voice that says, you are not your crimes. You are not your shame. You are my beloved. Maybe one day we will all learn what these, men's, what these men are learning. On that day, it will be as if the Lord Jesus himself has returned. We'll find him sitting with us in our suffering and our shame, our spiritual poverty, our moral illness, our lives full of distraction and excuses. And he will ask us the one question we need to answer. Do you want to be healed? Amen.